Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm Ted Cover. I'm John Perry. And today we are following up on our interview with Kevin Kelly about his book, The Inevitable, Understanding the 12 Technological Forces That Will Shape Our Future. If you are a first-time listener, I just want to point out that this is one of our Express episodes. This is the more loose and off-the-cuff companion podcast to our main flagship Review the Future podcast. Same feed. So if you want to tell which episode is which, the ones with the X are the Express episodes. The ones without it are the more in-depth episodes. So yeah, we had a, a good conversation, I thought, with Kevin Kelly, but uh, our time with him was very limited. And... We couldn't get into everything I wanted to get into, and we certainly couldn't challenge him very much on things because we kind of wanted to, you know, keep moving through the episode. Right. And I, and I think the strategy we took was also to try to get his ideas out, but maybe now is a good time to investigate some of those things. Yeah, it's pretty similar to what we did when we had uh, Robin Hansen on. We had the opportunity afterward to do a follow-up in one of these Express episodes. So that's what we're going to do today. And... So if you want to better understand this episode, listener, you might want to go back to episode 72, where we interviewed Kevin Kelly, although I'll try to explain things as we go so that you don't necessarily need to do that, but that would probably make this more interesting. Uh, So, you know, Kevin has this idea that uh, technology has this natural tendency or leaning, and that was why my first question to him was, you know, do you have an underlying theory for this or explanation for it? Because that idea is really interesting to me that maybe there is some bias in the nature of technology that we could use to make predictions about it um it didn't seem like he had much of a theory when we asked him about it it seemed like he was as he said just sort of stitching together observations and that wasn't the impression i got from the way he wrote in the book um because he again he kept saying underlying mathematics and physics or you know implying there was some like deeper logic Yeah, it seems like he believes that there is a set of biases that uh, technical things share, but he didn't want to enumerate and defend the reasons for that. Right, and maybe he does that in his previous book, What Technology Wants, which I have not read, but uh, he certainly doesn't do it in this book, and I was kind of hoping that he would, that he would tell us, you know, so let's take one of his concepts, right, which is that... It's sort of like an interconnectedness point. He, he phrases it, bits want to be connected to other bits. Okay, right. right. Um, so you can observe that. You can observe things like an, a rise in sharing, which is one of his trends, right. or a rise in copying, things like that that seem to resonate with that idea. But then is there an actual explanation for why that's occurring? And I thought it was fun as a thought experiment for me to try to figure out, like, how could you start to justify this kind of claim at, like, a really low level? Now, like, the two sort of tools of social science, uh, or two of the major tools that seem to be used a lot are, you know, evolutionary-style arguments, right? Right. And sort of economic incentive-style arguments. Right. So he makes what seems like an evolutionary argument in the book. Right, or it's phrased that way, similar to that Dawkins. Right, so... Richard Dawkins, obviously the famous evolutionary biologist who wrote The Selfish Gene, among other books, was one of the first people to sort of posit, like, looking at the world through the eyes of a gene, seeing what the gene wants, rather than looking at it through the eyes of an organism. Right. And 
you know, when we asked Kevin about that, he said that he was just sort of adopting that lens, sort of just, you Almost know. Almost as a rhetorical style. Almost as a rhetorical style. But yeah. I think, well, what if you adopt that more seriously, uh-huh. right? Now, Kevin called that doing the Richard Dawkins trick. Now, Richard Dawkins himself did the Richard Dawkins trick on ideas himself. Right. And that's where the term meme comes that's from. That's the meme thing, which is right? like a, an idea that acts like a gene, kind of. Yeah, so it's applying evolutionary logic to ideas. It's saying that the kinds of ideas that we have around are the kinds of ideas that are able to convince people to share and copy them. Right. Right? This explains, for example, religion. Right. Which is very good at getting you to spread it. Right. It's uh, almost a, a tenet of yeah. almost all of the big ones. But also explains, you know, fashion and jokes and trends and all kinds of things. Right. It's a pretty powerful idea. Right. Way to think of the world. Um, now, we talked about how, like, bits are kind of like ideas, but they're not exactly the same. Right? So, we, we've talked about, you know, genes... We take that model, apply it to memes or ideas. Can we then apply that to bits as Kevin Kelly wants to do? Right. And say that like bits, you know, want certain things. And bits is a kind of a strange uh, word to choose, right? Data might be better. Yeah. Information or data seems like. Information. But like, let's say information that's in a computer rather than to separate it from ideas. Right. Right. So it's digital information. Right. So it's encoded in bits, but it just seems like it's not the bits themselves. It's not the units of measure of data that are important. It's the data enclosed within. Okay, well, I'm going to say data. Yeah, data. We'll say data. Good. So a piece of data, right? What's the data that you're going to see in the world? What's going to be the data that manages to convince people to copy it? Right. right? It's not unlike the idea theory, right? And really, how different is it from an idea? Well, here's where it is different. Okay. Um, And here's where it's different from genes as well. So, you know, you don't have the issue of competition in as stark a way, right? You don't have as limited a carrying capacity, right? I mean, when it comes to genes competing, they have to compete, you know, through the organisms that they live in right. for lots of resources. And there's a lot of genes that don't make it. That's how evolution works. So we only see the ones today that made it. Same with ideas, right? I mean, humans have limited attention, which we've talked about. Right. So you only see the ideas that make it, right? I mean, people... And some ideas conflict with each other. Right. You can only hold one strongly in your head. Exactly. But that's... As long as we keep increasing our disk space, right, then that's, that same issue does not apply to data. Right, right. Because you could just have endless stores of data. Right. Right. So there's not the same level of competition that's weeding out. There's like, there's no system that's weeding out the data that is not copying itself. Now, the, the data that might be in the forefront of the internet is going to be the data that has convinced people to copy it well. But the data that doesn't copy itself well is still possibly just sitting there in the background waiting for someone to access it. Right, right. So it hibernates instead of dying off or right. something like that. And so that actually does seem to describe like the internet that we see, right? Where right. there's like this surface layer of, you know, listicles and cat videos and things, but you can dive a little bit deeper and you can find access to all manner of obscure things. Right. It's like that long tail yeah. thing. When someone uploads a cat video, it doesn't force us to delete a random Wikipedia article. Right, right, yeah. right. We so, just add more drives to the global internet, and we keep both. Right. So I feel like the evolutionary argument doesn't help us much here. Well, so there's not, not a strong evolutionary pressure on bits right. or on data as there is on, say, genes or ideas. I think I buy that. 
it seems like there's some uh, pressure in the sense that popular things get more popular. So you still have some of that network effect at the top end. Right. Amplifying the loudest voices. Right. Making sure we all see the cat video, basically. Mm-hmm. But then there, you don't have the corresponding culling. You don't have, you have, you don't have a culling process. Yeah. Exactly. So instead, you just have this like... It's, a, it's interesting because it's different. You can't imagine like evolution working like that. If right. all of the inferior animals or cells or species just sort of survived at the bottom. Right. But it, it just doesn't work like that because it's a uh, competitive system. Right. And again, we have so much disk space right now. It's just not that competitive. I mean, right. there are things probably that we never see because they you know, never got saved to begin with. But generally now when things get saved, they stick around. Right. You know, so I, I think you can't get very far with that method, but let's switch to the sort of economic incentive style of argumentation and sure. see if there's something that can explain some of his trends here that's like more fundamental than what he gives, right? Right. So again, he says bits want to be linked to other bits, right? Or data wants to be linked to other data. Right. And if, he, if we could prove why that was, like that is really underlying almost all of his trends, right? Cause right, right. I mean, uh, or at least a lot of them, sort of like interconnectedness, because he talks about sharing, he talks about flowing, he talks about accessing, even cognifying, because AI draws upon all this information. Sure. Um, and AI is a connecting feature, too. It connects one set of data with another or something like that. Yeah. So I feel like you could make a fundamental claim yeah. that the value of data is always higher Mm-hmm. when it's connected to more data. Right, okay. I mean, I don't know if it's always higher, but it does seem like an easy, like a good strategy to increase value. Now, I mean, okay, sometimes like data or information might be more valuable when it's kept separate from other data, like in the form of secrets. Sure, right? or just um, curated very heavily in the sense of kept noiseless. Kept with high signal? Well, okay, that's a separate issue, right? That's the filtering issue? I guess. I mean, I feel like I can imagine some situations in which more links aren't necessarily better, but I definitely can see that there are the majority of situations in which you're adding links, you're probably adding value. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting... I don't know if this is a law, though. I feel like I can come up with counterexamples. I mean, it does seem like maybe there is a strong economic incentive in a lot of cases Mm -hmm. to connect pools of data to other pools of data. Sure. Because they end up being more valuable together than they are apart. Sure, that seems reasonable. Now, I don't necessarily think that's true in 100% of cases. Right. uh, But it's true often enough that that could explain a lot of what he talks about. That could explain the push towards sharing. Right, right. Well, let's use like a, just a small like example, okay. right? Like what's more useful, like a single book or like a library of books that reference each other? Or like what's more useful, like, like a song or a song in like the context of other songs? Like being able to listen to a song in isolation or like listen to a song connected to other people? Or what's more valuable to, to like know someone's GPS information and know their GPS information and their accelerometer information and their profile link, right? Right. Like right. it's just like the more you combine things, it seems like each one increases in value around it. It's like a common phenomenon. Okay, sure. I don't know. I just think like maybe there's something there. I, I just I it was a bit of a disappointment for me that the book didn't like unpack that. Well, so but that seems like that's a, a bias of people. Oh yeah, no, it's an incentive argument. It's saying to... that people find it more valuable. Yeah. Right, right. And so it doesn't seem to suggest that there's a fundamental quality of technology that's driving this. 
Whereas he seems to think it's just the fact that it's technical in nature, that it inherently supports connection. Well, he had one example of that. Which was what? Which was copying in the internet. Right. Which is the only convincing example of that that I've seen in the book or that he gave us in Well, and that's the situation the where like, the fundamental property of the internet is copying information. Right. You can't literally move information. You can only copy it. That's just what it's doing all the time whenever it's doing anything. Movement is kind of like not even a real concept when, it, when you're talking about information. Right, right, right. Movement is really just two operations. It's a copy and then a delete of the original. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, but you don't delete the original until the copy's made. So that's like a fundamental principle. Right, right. right. And that is, a, that is a true thing about the design of digital computing devices. I mean, across the board, they don't really, yeah, they only copy. They don't move. That's what they do. Right. So I think, I feel like he's hit upon something fundamental there and like, you know, but mm-hmm. a point that's been made elsewhere. I mean, this is not like something brand new. Right. But, you know, if you could explain why, again, there's an increase in sharing and tracking and, you know, pulling together these large pools of data and suggest that that's actually, actually is inevitable that right. it's going to, you know, override other forces that want to keep that data separate because that's the problem, right? Is, you know, we don't have all of the world's books online and linked together and easily accessible because of intellectual property. Right. right. Um, and we don't have Napster and we don't have any number of things that right. were hits that people liked that uh, worked that were supposed to increase sharing on digital platforms. Right. Because our legal system or something uh, destroyed them. Yeah. And Facebook and Google aren't sharing all of their data with each other for the betterment of humanity. Uh, and right. I mean, even though, again, I think that value would be in some senses more valuable when once pulled together. Uh, right, right. If they could somehow come to a corporate deal where like Facebook gets all of Google's searching ability and Google gets all of their social data, they'd probably just both be more successful. But it seems like Kevin Kelly is suggesting that that will happen. Like where he talks about there being an intercloud of clouds at some point. He seems right. to think that all this data is inevitably on a collision course into one giant pool of data. And I think that's a compelling thought, but I feel like you need to explain really why that would happen uh, and why that would overpower other human desires and institutions and things that maybe don't want that to happen. Right. Uh, And I feel like you could make an incentive argument about how it's just too compelling. It's just too valuable to have this stuff all interconnected. Right. That we're not going to be able to resist it on a long enough time scale. Mm -hmm. So I just like, to me, I wonder if there's just a more rigorous version of the argument along those lines. With a more economic sort of underpinning. Right. I think, I feel like he's doing economics essentially in his book. But he's like dressing it up like evolution because that sounds good. I mean, it does sound good. I got to give yeah. him credit for it. It's fun reading. And it's, um, it's understandable in a way that some of the books we read are a little bit uh, impenetrable. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like the polar opposite of uh, Robin Hanson's book. Yes, it's, it's very, very readable. optimistic <laughs> and readable and maybe not super but rigorous. Not as rigorous at all, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's, it's a great book. So, I mean, I, I do recommend it. But that was an area like I kept thinking it was going to get there and it never did. So there, there are a couple other things to discuss about the book. We got onto the subject of intellectual property, right? Yes. I mean, he was saying things that you and I agree with. Now, on this podcast, we haven't really we have been talking for some time this topic about properly doing an intellectual property show, but we haven't done it yet. 
And he was saying, you know, we need a Darwin-like figure to come in and give us a new theory of IP. Yeah, he did say that. I remember that. Um, that I don't know. Maybe don't know we just means. don't need IP. I hate to say it, but like, I'm, you know, I can't make all the arguments today right. <laughs> for this, but I feel like, you know, again, I wouldn't get rid of our IP system overnight, but on a long enough time scale, is it really savable? Oh, I, I, I think it's absolutely savable and, uh, you know, reconcilable. With- I, I think it's not a good idea, but I think it's definitely going to stick around it seems like there's so many uh, entrenched interests that rely on it as a structure that replacing it with any better structure would be really, really challenging. Now, there are, there are a couple alternatives I can think of if we were to try to redesign it, right? Okay. Like, so, so what are the alternatives? So like, let's say we could wave a magic wand and, and get rid of intellectual property. Okay. Right? Now, Done. Okay. Now, before everybody freaks out about uh, the artists and professionals that, you know, need to eat and make money, let's also wave another magic wand and say there's a basic income. So those people are fine. Okay. So I I just don't want the listeners freaking out about, uh, you know, the poor musician. Okay. Who now can't make a living. No, this is, I really like this magic wand world that we've gone to. So we live in this fantasy land where we have a basic income, but we have abolished intellectual property. Okay. Right. So first of all, now we do have the super book library, right? Now we do have all oh, the yeah. world's books online and perfectly connected to each other via their footnotes and endnotes and like, you know, marginalia contributed by all the world's readers. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have like a massive increase in knowledge and access to things. That's just one of the many benefits. Yes. Um, you know, no one has to ask for permission to, to innovate or to do anything. Um, but, you know, what do we still care about in that world? Maybe we still care about provenance, about authorship, about credit. Right. Right? So maybe we can take this, the incredible tracking machine that is the internet. Yeah. And we can use that to find out, you know, in incredible detail exactly who the originator of an idea is and make sure they get credit, credited. So basically we go on a, like an anti-plagiarism kick. Yeah, the biggest crime in this world is is plagiarism. I like this uh, thought. Right, so we, we still we still care about origination yeah. and credit where credit is due. Yeah, uh, but maybe we don't care about ownership, right? Right. Uh, I mean, the other thing that we could do is we could have, if we wanted to make this world a little bit more monetary in nature when it comes to ideas, was we could have compulsory licensing which seemed to be what he was suggesting right. with his vision. Now, I think this is really hard to implement, but you could, it, it gets rid of one part of intellectual property, which is bad, which is the asking for permission part. Right. Right. So one of the problems, if you own an idea and I want to use it for something. I'm uh, not going to let you use it. You can just say no. Right. Even if I have like a really great way to improve upon your idea and I'm like even waving dollar bills in your face. And even if I'm not doing anything with the idea at all. Yeah. I may not just, I may not even be able to reach you because you may be, you know, on a vacation somewhere without a cell Cayman phone. Islands. Yeah. yeah. Who knows? I know where I am. So if we get rid of that. Yeah. Um, and you also like, let's say that you can't extract enormous sums of money out of me. So it's, you know, there's I've been like trying a, for years. No, no success yet. Right. And you're not going to get to do it in this fantasy world either. Okay. Uh, because there's a limit, right? Right. Set. Like the, the government says like, this is the maximum uh, amount you so can charge. So there's a, there's a pricing there's a, scheme. There's a price, price setting. 
Right. Yeah. So there, there's price setting, and it's also like people have to license it. Right. So it's similar to how radio broadcast is run in America. Right. Right. That's a good analogy. Like there right. are there are things that are run this way. So I'm not. This is not completely made up. That's yeah. That's the biggest thing I can think yeah. of that's run this way. Now, if you just got rid of patents and you applied this to most inventions, right? right that does seem like a better world. Now you're still going to have disputes in some cases, but if the fee that you're paying is reasonable, right? You may not really have that many disputes. Uh, yeah, it seems like uh, if this was the system in place and there was a lot of certainty around it, then it would actually be pretty easy for people to just say, okay, I need to have the following license fees in order to sell my product, go and raise that money and just sell the product. You know, and that's just a little bit of added cost, it's a little bit of friction on invention, but it doesn't seem like it would stop very many And you'd be able to look that up inventions. right away. Right, because It'd be easy. You just count the number of things you need to do, and then multiply it by a number. Basically. And there'd be—that's th- the okay. Here's another thing we're going to add to this new intellectual property regime. Yeah, as well is we're going to force you to register everything. Um, right now, you don't have to register copyrights, right? Right. So you should have to register copyrights as well. Okay. Right. Those things should not be automatically copyrighted. Okay. Right. So the all these so patents are already like this, right? But I right. want I want patents and copyrights together in the same database right. that's like easily searchable and you don't need any permission. Right. So you can immediately find it, immediately know what you're going to pay. And so like, there's just no breaks on when you want to do something. You just know like, oh, I can borrow this picture. It's going to cost me 10 cents. Do I want to do it? Yes or no? And like, everything's very transparent that way. Yeah. I mean, I could see this system working. It would take a lot of buy-in from a lot of different people to set this up. Right. Getting there from here seems... Pretty hard, but I guess if we're in magic wand world, I could see it working once in place. Right. Um, of course, the third part of the IP regime, uh, trademarks, would be a little differently handled, I think, uh, from patents and copyrights, because cop- copyrights and patents really can affect innovation, and that's where most of the problems with IP come from. Right. There's a big cost every time somebody wants to do something creative, uh, whether on a small scale or a large scale, and they can't. Uh, because of, you know, the roadblocks that are put in the way by this system. Right. Now, even with all these changes that we made in Magic Wand world, yeah. Um, if we try to keep the compulsory licensing part of it, we still have the pro, and even the credit part of it, we mm-hmm. still have the problem that I raised talking to Kevin, which is like knowing where to draw lines between ideas. Yeah, so and- they're still difficult to demarcate. Right. And when is something transformed enough? This is something that Kevin Kelly talks about in his book, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, when is it changed enough to be its own thing? Right. Right. So it's the remixing. I don't know. We're not, uh, it's not an easy problem to solve, obviously, but I feel like. Um, what it does seem like is that the current definitions are too loose. Patents are being accepted all the time for extremely minor innovations on previous designs. I mean, copyright's big flaw is that it's automatic and forever. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, forever is the biggest problem for sure with copyright. And I could imagine getting to a copyright regime that keeps the general consequence, but is closer to the original intention, which is, you know, you get seven years, maybe you can renew for another seven if you're, uh, if it's particularly profitable to you and you want to do that or something. Um, And then that's it. Then the item goes into the public domain and people can, can use it. Um, something like that, I think, would be would still introduce drag, but might be worth it, um, just for the 
cultural value it places on doing this thing. Well, we need halfway measures, right? Because we don't have a magic wand. We don't live in magic wand land. So back in our world, that doesn't sound like such a terrible compromise for now. And I feel like there's a lot of consensus around the issue that we should just shorten terms for copyright. Well, at least in the tech world, there's a lot of consensus, right? Among people who think about these sorts of things this way, but in the entertainment world, there's obviously a large consensus to do the opposite. Um, even if I think that's a little bit misguided, that's what people think. And then in the American trade delegation, the right. people who actually, uh, go overseas and dele- you know, um, negotiate our trade deals. There seems to be the strong, uh, hope that we could, you know, increase terms and, and make the whole world even more restrictive. Right. Well, I, I, consensus, I meant relatively, like, you right. know, compared to, say, abolishing IP, uh, right. well, a lot of people agree that no, the system uh, needs, like, tweaks of the sort of, say, like, shortening terms. Mm-hmm, I mean, like, mm-hmm. there's, you can Or pull, making it harder to file a patent in the first place. Yeah, you could get a lot of smart academics and famous people to all sure. sign a thing that said that, sure. even, even if there are large forces aligned against that. Yeah, well, it seems like there's a big ideological divide here where a lot of people seem to think that because IP export is good business for the United States right now, mm. particularly in the form of pharmaceuticals, but I think other, you know, technology and other things too, that it it makes sense for us to basically replicate our IP regime all over the world and if if any, you know, if anything make it stronger. Right. And uh, just to tie this back to the future really quickly, you know, this is the kind of thing that can slow the onset of some of the technologies we talk about. I mean, that, that, I think that's what's at stake here. Right, right. Um, it's supposed to speed up technological progress by incentivizing innovation, but uh, it more often than not does the opposite. And uh, maybe we should leave this topic now because it's such a huge one. Yeah, uh, at some point we should come back to this with some more data, but uh, as like a primary discussion, I think we've covered the basics. Yeah. So there, there was another topic that came up with Kevin Kelly. Okay, what's that? Which was the, the intelligence explosion issue. Right. And I didn't have time to respond to him on he, this. Yeah, well, this was toward the end of our interview. On yeah, and he said he'd written about this a little bit in his previous book. I couldn't, because I don't have the digital version of his previous book, and I can't just hit the find uh, command. Yeah. Like, I couldn't really locate the passage where he discusses this issue. Okay. So I don't know his full written down thoughts on it. I know what he said on the podcast. Uh, he, he objected to the term smarter than human, right? Okay. He also, you know, he made the claim that intelligence is like multidimensional. Yeah. Made the claim that humans are like, you know, just one possible type of mind. Sure. Right. It seemed to me like none of these objections actually undermine the point that, say, Bostrom and people at the, you know, Machine Intelligence Research Institute are making. Right. Uh, because those same people often make the exact same point, right? That there's like a very large possibility space of minds. Right. Humans are in a tiny corner of that. And that's part of the danger, right? Is that there's so many other types of minds that we can't conceive of. Who right. knows what they're going to care about or what they're going to do. Or and that AIs are going to be like sort of aliens. Right. That may not share our values at all. Right. Now, in terms of smarter than human, he's right to raise that issue because that's important, right? Like that's implying a simple hierarchy where there's humans at a certain level 
Like, you know, you build up to humans through like the animal kingdom, eventually hitting chimps and then humans. And that's sort of like the pinnacle. And then there's like some level above that. Um, right. Which I, we're not at all certain that that's how intelligence works. Right. So I think like that's, it's correct to point that out. But yeah. I, again, I don't think like the AI disaster scenario arguments rely upon accepting such a simplistic model of intelligence. Right. I think it's, there's a big difference between saying it's not a simple linear hierarchy and saying there's no way to be smarter than human. Right? Right. So I completely agree with the first thing. Right. Um, something may be smarter than us only in a particular dimension, mm-hmm. or it might not be smarter at all in terms of it may score the same on an IQ test, but it might just be faster and able to access more storage, let's say. Right. Than us, and would already have certain tremendous advantages over human intelligence at certain tasks. Right. And he was making the point that, well, calculators already do that, and that's true. Many things are smarter than human in certain in areas. In certain tasks, right. Right. But the, ta- but the certain task that people are scared of them getting smarter than us at yeah. is the task of inventing smart machines, right? That's the whole point of the that's intelligence the explosion task argument. That we are, right. Right. And there's nothing to necessarily say that inventing smart machines is a task that uniquely takes human style intelligence. No, I mean, I I don't think you need to be like uh, mammalian (laughs) origin, smart ape type intelligence to invent a smart machine. You just have to have a series of competencies that, you know, human beings have and that in theory... Uh, some smart machine could have while also lacking, you know, other human qualities. Right. Cause you could have a machine that is dumber than a human at interpreting poetry. Right. Uh, but it's better than a human at making Fair. humans are very dumb at doing that. <laughs> well, poets make it hard. So stop it poets. Uh, but use regular punctuation. <laughs> right. Right. So it, it might be, I don't know. It, let's say it's worse than a human at calming down a crying baby. Okay. Okay. Sure. That's an easy one. Sure. Right? Like the robot's like, calm Stop down, crying. calm down, and the baby's just crying. <laughs> um, but for some reason, we gave this computer the uh, typical uh, vocoder robot voice. No, it's also worse at uh, speaking with inflection. Got it. Yeah. So it's, it's worse at humans no, at a lot of things. Right. But it's better than humans at inventing smart machines. Right. So then it, you know, it invents its successor or it modifies its own source code. Mm hmm. Um, maybe it makes the improvements that it needs in that case to calm down the baby. That's like distracting it from its work or, uh, (laughs) I like the idea that this robot just is as a baby. It needs to take care of for some reason. That's like a buddy comedy with like a rope. Be more sympathetic to humans. If we just stick a baby in the lab with it. Right. (laughs) Uh, yeah. Just like the decision-making that that led to that. Right. I don't know why I keep coming back to that, but the the point is like, you know, (laughs) If it's better at that task, then, you know, it goes ahead and puts in a circuit, you know, in its brain that it's missing, not literally a circuit, but it, like, right. you know, it adds that feature that or it's it missing. Or it just continues being better at making smart machines, even if it never surpasses the human in baby care. Right. It could still surpass the human in, you know, all kinds of useful functions. Now, there's still an objection, though, that you could make, mm-hmm. right, which is... Um, and, and maybe this is the core of his objection, which is just about the definition of intelligence, right? Like, so if you're saying like, 
Well, what does that even mean? You know, we're making a smarter machine and then a smarter machine and then a smarter machine. Isn't that still like implying that we're going up on some metric and what even is that metric and can we even explain it and does it even exist? Right. Right? Um, there are definitions of intelligence that, you know, people can settle on. I mean, they're not perfect. And the, the one that, you know, Miri seems to use is something like, you know, the ability to achieve goals in a wide variety of environments. Right, right. So, you know, if you have a goal, right, and the goal is clearly defined and measurable, right, then you can have an ability, intelligence to achieve that goal in different environments. And you could, that becomes an actual real metric that you could start to, you know, define and codify and be rigorous about. Right. So I do think there's something there. I don't think you can just sort of like wave that away. Like, I think that's, that's maybe a good enough definition to like, pose this as a risk. Right. And I think it's just, you know, intelligence is so caught up with how we think of ourselves as beings culturally and linguistically that it's really hard to hear somebody say, oh, we're going to make an intelligent machine and not assume that you mean we're going to make a human-like machine. We're going to make an artificial brain that will act like an artificial man. No, we, we mean a goal-achieving machine. Right, but I think when we talk about intelligent machines here, right, we mean something that exhibits this, uh, this property that Miri's talking about. You know, it could be non-conscious. It could, it could be uh, a different... It could be conscious in a way we can't really um, understand or empathize with, but it could... Um, we're going to be able to recognize it as intelligent because it's going to be able to act in the world according to goals like like this definition suggests. And I think that's uh, the sort of category error that people always make. Right, because, you know, you, you could raise the objection of, say, like, dolphins. Well, maybe dolphins are smarter than humans in certain ways because they're well adapted to their environment. Well, they're definitely smarter than us at swimming, right? <laughs> yeah, they're better achieving Clearly. goals like, you know catching fish in their mouth and stuff like if you yeah if you had like an olympic event that was like swim a long way in the ocean and then catch a fish in your mouth and then turn around and do it again right the dolphin would beat the human every time no question but then if you do say like wide variety of environments then you now you have to repeat that test you know that's true in a lot of different ways He's much worse at it in the desert <laughs> right the human would have a huge advantage over the dolphin there Right, so... Not just, I mean, that's, I'm making a joke. Obviously, it's a physiological advantage and not his intelligence level, but... Well, no, it, I mean, but, you know, like, <laughs> underwater, right? Like, a human can actually put on a diving suit and stuff, and... It's true. I mean, that's a great example... Because we can use technology. Humans being intelligent, they invent things like scuba gear, and then they teach each other how to use it, and then other people who aren't even the people who invented scuba gear put on the scuba gear and go swimming with the dolphins and yeah. they may not be quite as good, but they're a lot better than their physiology. Whereas would dolphins allow. can't invent desert gear. Right. They don't have uh Huba and the day that they Huba tanks that allow them to go into the human world. Well, on the day that they do, <laughs> I we're know we're in trouble. Operation dolphin storm. <laughs> dolphins come marching. Um, <laughs> so I, I think that's most of like the main things I wanted to say about the, the Kevin Kelly interview that we did, I think, you know, there's a couple other things in his book that I just thought were, were interesting. Mm-hmm. Here's one I thought was interesting. Uh, he says, here the quantification from digital tracking was subsumed into a wholly new bodily sensation. He's talking about like somebody who actually invented a compass belt. Okay. 
that would sort of vibrate in on the side of his body that was facing north automatically. <laughs> That's cool. Right? And so he's, he's using this sort of as a launching point to discuss a, a bigger idea. He goes on, in the long term, this is the destiny of many of the constant streams of data flowing from our bodily sensors. They won't be numbers. They will be new senses. So I think that, that that's also an interesting topic for a That is podcast, an interesting topic. Which is that, like, we have all this data coming at us. Right. Like, which way north is relative to where we're facing? And we could turn that into a sensation, like almost like a sixth sense, rather than just a readout. Right? Right. So when you feel a slight vibration, you just sort of have this, like, sort of vague feeling of north. Well, it's not that vague. It's an actual vibration. But you know what I mean? It's like, it's not, it's more visceral. It would be operating sort of at like a more primitive level. It's located in your body. Yeah. So you're accessing it differently through your nervous system. And you probably get, get trained over a short period of time to just sort of know where north was. Yeah, exactly. You probably reduce the frequency of pulses over time. Yeah, Exactly. And I, I, I think I'd, I'd be curious to look up the guy who did that experiment, but I feel like that was sort of like what happened. Yeah. That'd be my intuition of what, what you, because the brain is pretty good actually at taking new signals and just finding patterns. What's really cool about that is what happens when you have access to the brain uh, through, you know, whatever nanobots in your blood or something like that. And you can pipe information in directly and really have it be like like a literal new sense like uh like who knows how you would experience it if it was just data being dumped right into your brain yeah and and you know the brain seems to be able to incorporate and map new data pretty quickly right there's another th- this wasn't anything that was that uh directly linking to the brain but there was another example that he gave of going into uh, VR and like having controlling a character where you their legs are controlled by your arms Oh, weird. And their arms are controlled by your legs. Oh, that's And he said really it weird. took only like a few minutes to get comfortable with it, like <laughs> to just sort of remap that around. So yeah, I, I don't know. It's interesting. And there's been other experiments too that like maybe add like a fifth appendage in VR mm. that is like controlled by like tilt and like elbow position and like sort of like other variables of your existing forelimbs, but mm. it's like literally a fifth appendage that has like freedom of motion, mm. like a tail or something like that. And like people seem to be able to kind of get the hang of that pretty quickly too. Um, That's awesome and crazy. I mean, yeah. that makes you think there's a future of uh, designer extra limbs ahead, like a very total recall kind of future where we can have tails and extra arms and things like that. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of other quotes I could go through, but I'll just say, read the book, you know, at this point. Yeah, it's an interesting book and, uh, we were glad to have him on, uh, the show. And now we've sort of covered the things that we didn't get to in our, in our hour with him Mm -hmm. until next time. I'm Ted cover. I'm John Perry. And you are listening to review the future. To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening.